0: Hashtag Tuesday Takeover. And our guest this evening is Ms. Yasmin Suka, human rights lawyer, chair of the United Nations Commission of Human Rights for South Sudan, and is the executive director of the Foundation for Human Rights in South Africa. Ms. Suka, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. Welcome to SAFM, and thank you for indulging us.
1: Thank you, and good evening to you and your listeners.
0: Penultimate day of Human Rights Month. In the context of your Appreciation for where we are as a nation. It probably might make a little more sense to the listeners at home who might not know you or your work, your role in law, your journey in law, and specifically within the law, human rights. Why that avenue of law?
1: Well, I—I I mean, I—I was an you know a lawyer who also practiced in the commercial field. But during the transition and in the years of struggle, I was also a member of the interfaith movement. And what we were grappling with was really how to transform South Africa. And so in that context, I increasingly began to take over more human rights work. And um, I was also on the committee that brought um, South Africans home you know, after the negotiations. And so from that, became engaged in this field of transitional justice, which was really mm. the question around what do you do, you know, when you transition and how do you deal with the crimes of the past? And in that context, that was part of the discussions, um around establishing a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. So in a sense, I also came from a home where we were very much a part of the struggle. Um, and so human rights was almost like the roadmap or a path on which I was going to work anyway.
0: Interesting you mentioned commercial law and all of that and many might not quite appreciate the major sacrifice you inherently would have made. Everybody knows in law, commercial law no less, there's a ton of money to be made if you just go in at the right time or if you get the right clients or you just get that one instruction that turns your fortunes over that decision to forfeit essentially what could have been a very lucrative career, if not in law, certainly in business, as many have since made that migration. Talk to us about that and why ultimately it was always going to be the human rights route that would prevail.
2: Well,
1: I mean, I I was at the heart of um, a commercial firm that was doing... um, an enormous amount of commercial work. I was also qualified as a conveyancer by the way. Oh, I was qualified to transfer property. <laughs> um, but you know increasingly as um, I engaged in the negotiations and the whole question of the transition, um, you know, more and more dealing with my work around detainees, that was taking over my time. And then, as I said, I was also part of this group that brought the South African Council of Churches, the Catholic Bishops Conference, and the World Conference on Religion and Peace, which I belong to. Mm. Increasingly, we, you know, were beginning to negotiate with the government what the conditions for the return of South Africans should be. And in fact, the, um, you know, the National Repatriation Committee was sometimes the only place where the liberation movement mm-hmm. actually spoke to each other. Um, and so, um, you know, from that period onwards, what it became a fascinating subject for me, how we would deal with the struggle of victims. And that really just turned my, um, you know, my aspirations to looking at um, how we could transform South Africa. I also sat, by the way, as, you know, I. At one point, I was asked to go to the bench um, and to act. And, you know, my six weeks ended up being 15 weeks in the bench. (laughs) But at the end of it, I decided that um, at 35, I was too young to sit there. Which division? Uh, I was in the Kharteng Division. Yes. Um, And dealing with, you know, commercial matches that were coming coming before me. But I decided that um, at the end of the day, I was going to choose the human rights law, Um and that's
0: what I did. You are no longer 35, please, Ms. Suka, so there's opportunity <laughs> for you to go back to the bench. And just to explain the legal jargon involved here, when somebody talks about being on the bench, it effectively means they are a judge. In the case of Ms. Yasmin Suka, she was an acting judge, initially appointed for six weeks. It became 15 weeks. Be careful at some point it doesn't become 15 years at the apex court, given the fact that her profile reads as beautifully as it does when she speaks of it. I'm going to ask something in the context of the TRC and that transitional justice to which you refer to, and this is something which really is of interest to me. It always does pique my interest. The non-ANC aspect of the struggle, certainly with the benefit of hindsight even, could we have done more as a nation? Could we be doing more as a nation to recognize those struggles, those sacrifices, those contributions, one? And two, even still, there are many non-ANC freedom fighters who languish in jail. I say this with the Pan-Africanist Congress in mind, but many other organizations as well would have a claim to the statement I've just made that If you were not in the ANC, it is as though your struggle and sacrifice is lesser than that of those members who were in the ANC. It's a politically charged statement I've just made, but it is one in any event that does require a response.
1: I think that, you know, definitely South Africa could do better. And, you know, one of the struggles of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission was really to reach out um, to all of the liberation movements, as well as all of the operatives that belong to the former apartheid state, And the idea was that the amnesty laws would be applicable to all, and that victims from every political tradition in the country would have to be recognized and heard. And I think that in the case of the pan-African movement, You had a number of operatives who did apply for amnesty, but it's equally true to say that many of them who were not assisted at the time properly, I think, didn't make sufficiently a case that would ground or give them that amnesty, which would have allowed them really um, to be freed from prison. And another group of operatives who I also think really struggled with the process because you will recall that the Carter Freedom Front um, didn't mm-hmm. really want to yes. come into the process, and it was quite late when they did. And so I would say that they also, another group where, um, you know, a number of their people also sit in prison. And one of the arguments we have made is that there should be some kind of process which should allow us to deal with, Uh, with those operatives who remain in prison, the only thing that we have said is that given that we've had the Truth Commission, it's important that the basis on which this is done does not flood um, the way in which that operated. And so we need to think creatively around how we can assist them and how we can ensure that they also benefit from some kind of deal. The only thing we objected to is that this should not be, be done through, um, you know, the president's political pardon discretion without some kind of accountability to victims. So I think there is that recognition mm. that there needs to be a process. By the way, a lot of people, of course, having served their time, have also, um, you know, uh, they, they're not in prison anymore. Um, But in reality, I think that there's still a number of people who languish there, and it's important for us to, in fact, take stock of that. And just like we are looking for justice for the victims of political violence, we Mm. need to take account of the victims of those groups who were excluded as well.
0: For sure, and and, and that takes me to what essentially ties into that, in that the transitional justice period of the late 80s, early to mid-90s, was in many respects a transition for an entire society and the many nuances within that transition. Of course, the obvious one was the political transition from minority rule to democratic majority rule, black and white issues that had to be taken into account and considered the political space in which the political parties were all in, not just against the National Party at the time, but the movements that were all banned, as it were, the allegations around some of those political parties that were said to be stooges of the national government, but also the intra-black, so to speak, intra-African, intra-tribal questions of the transition that in many respects have not yet been solved if one looks at what is happening not just in the political space but also in the social edifice of the country. There are many ghosts that have not been laid to rest and, of course, the transition is an ongoing social project. How far are we in attending and tackling these difficult issues some 27 years on? Well, I think that
1: we, you know, to be very frank, I think what we've seen was a political transition, which was mainly at the sort of national political level. But when we look at the question of the socio-economic transition, um, we look at the unfinished land project, we look at the poverty and inequality, which are racially based in South Africa, then I would argue that we haven't really addressed that transition as well. And of course, when you look at this intra Ethnic conflicts, which you raise and which manifest itself, I think, in so many different ways, in the political space, in community spaces, um, this seems to continue. I think this is where the expectation was that at that local level, um, you know, community structures and religious communities would take over the process and they would begin this process of hearing each other but also finding ways for people to live with each other. But I think when you know when you look at the fact that people expected that the quality of their lives would change mm. and that economically they would benefit, and of course between 1999 um, and this current period, what we also saw was that as we adopted different economic models, what you also saw was a large number of people who were excluded basically from the economy. And in fact, the COVID pandemic has made that worse. And so in this context, I think one of the questions that the Truth Commission has to really answer for is this question of beyond the political violence, did we deal with the real crime of apartheid, which was the way in which people were excluded from the economy, the fact that by 1913, um, black people had lost their land completely, um, the fact that there was job reservation in the country and the missing question for me was always the structural nature of the violence. It's one thing to look at what we call civil and political rights yes, violations. Yes, yes. You know, which are about torture and killings and massacres. And those systemic are important ones. but what we need to recognise is that the systemic nature of ATE mm. which was social and economic and legal exclusion we never really dealt with those issues. And one of the missing questions is, I think, the role of the beneficiary or those who benefited from the fund test. And, you know, when the Commission tried to discuss these issues, of course they were shouted down. Um, and we did recommend that there should be a wealth tax in South Africa. And the government chose not to take up that recommendation. But now more than ever, mm. we need a new social contract. And we need those who are the beneficiaries of apartheid state and the beneficiaries of the transition, people like myself who benefited from that change. We need to be able to input into um, some sort of fund which can be used and applied to change the lives of the millions of South Africans who are locked out of the economy.
0: Mm, many fascinating issues there. I will hope that the beneficiaries, whoever they are, and I think we know what we're talking about, will answer for themselves or contribute certainly in this conversation with Ms. Yasmin Suka, Human Rights Lawyer, Chair of the United Nations Commission on Human Rights for South Sudan, Executive Director, Foundation for Human Rights in the country. When you speak about accountability in the broad terms in which you proffered some of your thoughts... I would imagine at some point there has to be a cutoff, not because you are not recognizing the need otherwise for that accountability, but for practicality's sake, for expediency's sake, and precisely because you say we need a new social contract as a society. If we are then to move on that basis of a, whatever the new so- social contract is, certain concessions have to be made, as many were made in '94. What would you say, irrespective, without actually getting into the conversation that you're about to have, accountability for apartheid crimes. But what is happening now in this country, in this era, where many people's expectations are not being met, many of which are basic human rights expectations, is that not more urgent now than, say, the reflective accountability of what would have happened for those beneficiaries to account? Is what is happening now not as urgent, if not more urgent, given the fact that it's a lived and current experience?
1: It depends, of course, on which sort of vantage point you come from. But when you speak to the families, the victims of a for them, you know, the search for the truth is really critical. And remember when we talk about accountability, we talk about many different kinds of, accountability. Um, In the South African context, we adopted a restorative justice approach where um, if you came forward and you made a truthful disclosure, then of course the law would not follow its course. But it was always understood that in fact, the basis for the transition was this commitment that if you did not apply for amnesty and you did not come forward, or if you made a false disclosure, then the law would follow its course, And that is why at the end of the first period of the work of the Truth Commission, we handed over these cases to the National Prosecutorial Authority with a view that they should investigate and where possible prosecute. But that didn't preclude mm. that there should be other mechanisms to deal with this question of the search of families for the truth. Mm. And remember, we also spoke about reparations and we didn't only talk about individual reparations, but we also raised the question of community reparations, which would look really at the structural ways in which communities had been damaged. And of course, 27 years down the line, the community reparations program is one that is still up for discussion, and there is money in the President's Fund to deal with that. And. You know, my view has always been that every South African should contribute to that fund so that communities themselves can decide what are the projects that will help to transform their communities. And I think particularly of young people, because we're also dealing with an intergenerational trauma. Mm. Whereas before, we were dealing with the mothers and fathers of victims. Now we are dealing with the sons, the daughters, the sisters. The brothers, and you can see how so many families have become consumed by the fact that they have not been able to recover the truth about what happened to loved ones. And when we talk about this question of accountability, I think there's a particular responsibility for those who were the architects and the authors and implementers of a They have never really come forward. And in fact, it was only last year. After a great deal of pressure from domestically and internationally, that former president declared finally admitted that apartheid had been a crime against humanity, and normally we put on trial those who were responsible for the crimes, um, you know, against humanity of which apartheid. He first denied that. He first he spent years in denial, and And, and it was only. that brought him to
0: say that. He emboldened many people, though. He emboldened many people to espouse that belief, and beyond a belief, it became a practice, it became a way of life, such that whoever claimed the oppression of apartheid and discrimination of apartheid, having stunted one's progress, that person, by the denier as it were, was seen as a crazy person. That is just something I'm leaving out there because I'm trying to get calls through. I do have two. Please, with your indulgence, Ms. Ms. Yasmin Suka, let me go to Aisha in Uppington and Mike in Newlands. Aisha in Uppington, good evening. Welcome to sFM Good evening,
2: Tangeza, and to your if the glass is empty, you appeal to your ancestors and they will fill it. That's a side Side thing furthermore before you have you have noted that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has not done the job I agree with you totally I personally would like to have before a commission like the TRC, the families that hunted the Bushmen like animals, we need them to pay for what they have done. The black South Africans need to have this matter resolved in an appropriate manner. Do you hear me?
0: I do. And I'm sure Ms. Yasmin Suka hears you too. And I appreciate that. Mike in Newlands, good evening.
3: Good evening, Sengeza, and good evening to Yasmin Suka. I had the pleasure of meeting you all those years ago in the TRC along with Alex Berrain and the Arch, but that was a long time ago. I'm a little bit more forgiving. I don't think the Truth Commission was a big failure. I think we were as a country so young, just come out of apartheid, so much going on. I actually think we did an amazing job, but, yeah, we did fail on many fronts, and a lot of people did not find out the truth as to what really went down. My quick question is, I know you're going to deal with accountability of apartheid and, and so on, but uh, I would like to ask you a quick question about accountability now. Uh, I'm a, of the opinion, after all these years, that um, nothing's changed too much. We've had um we've had Marucano, we've had We've had the shooting of Andres Titani, the latest tragedy in the streets of Johannesburg. And I would argue that human rights in South Africa today has not really improved a whole lot. In fact, there's no justice for anybody. And I would say that lives are quite cheap in South Africa. And I would also further argue, in fact, that black lives are even cheaper because there is never any accountability for all the tragedies that have taken place under our current government. Nobody seems to pay the price. There seems to be, yeah, as I say, life is very, very cheap. And I'd love your opinion on that.
0: Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much. much appreciated, Mike. Thank you so much. Let's go to Mamu Vuyiswa in Park Town North. Vuyiswa in Park Town North, good evening.
2: Yes, hello. Hello, ma. We can hear you
0: now. Thank you. Go for it. Okay.
2: Thank you.
0: Mama, go for it. We can hear you.
2: Yeah, okay. Yeah, man, Sangezo, uh, it's very painful and very hurting, this thing. Now it happened when I was still uh, in exile in the States, but. Uh, I was following up, you know, losing my parents and all those things. It's an unfinished business. And it it is so sad that South Africa being uh, run by Africans, you know, themselves that know what we went through, Uh, including advocate Yasmin herself. It's hard to get hold of her. They've hibernated somewhere. They are okay. We are not okay. We are not healed. And uh, lastly, I would like to say, if Britain has acknowledged that contributed in, in, in the Second World War and have agreed to compensate them. If Germany has agreed to compensate Namibia and so on and so forth. But South Africa, there is nothing wrong as all come to the military veterans. They say the budget that they were supposed to pay us has gone to COVID. You know, the story after story, comrades are dying every day of hunger. That's sad.
0: Particularly yeah, said, you sure. know, much appreciated, Mama. Advocate, justice, professor, human rights lawyer, activist, everything. Msoka Ms. is going to respond to that. In Durban, Sakile, good evening.
4: Hey, uh, uh, I um, You know, you talking about the material condition, you know, nothing, nothing has changed, you know. But of course, there is a, you know, certain some sort of black middle class that has been formed, but, you know, I don't believe that there is a black middle class because those people are one far away from, you know, poverty. But, you know, sometimes it's shocking that even the cultural war, you know, you know, your racism, we are not winning at all. At all. I mean, yes, he's not white. He had a former a, a vice chancellor of VET. That man who was racist in South Africa, and we all knew he was racist. But he was getting—he was a political analyst as well in South, in South Africa. When he got to London, our former oppressors, colonial masters, he didn't survive a month in London. He used the N word in London, but he—but he—he used to—he used to say very very offensive things here in South Africa, and people didn't call him out, and people, you know. I'm just worried even in the little things, we're not winning. And then what about the material conditions then? If if you can't even deal with little things like, you know, micro Thank you so much.
0: Much appreciated. Yeah, this is getting heavy. Masuka, respond to some of the questions and comments, please.
1: I I agree with many of our callers that we have a huge challenge in South Africa, And the problem lies in the fact that while we have this wonderful constitution, which um, really establishes human rights, freedom, and dignity at the center, what we have not been able to do is to implement the measures that are set out in the constitution. And those deal with the question of both the land question, the restitution, the question of economic inequalities, And that is why I argue that in fact what we really need is a new social contract um, in which we as South Africans decide that all of us have to demonstrate solidarity with each other because we cannot have the kind of problems that we have where every year university students are excluded because their families can't pay fees. And this year the situation is incredibly problematic because not only were people affected by the normal job losses, but the COVID pandemic also set South Africa back um, incredibly. And so within that context, we have to find a way in which we really pay the damage that people are suffering. Um, I think one of your first callers also spoke about um, the historical injustices that were done to the Khoi and the sans and I think that this is the one area where I do know that the government has been trying to look at how to deal with the ravages that were unleashed on South Africa's first peoples in a sense. But this is going to require a contribution from all of us if South Africa is going to have to change. And, you know, it goes back to that question of do we understand that we were the beneficiaries, those who benefited from apartheid? because of the economic um, progression that people made. I mean, there are studies that are done on how long it takes for one generation to move out of poverty. And while in many countries this is a period of seven to eight years, Mm -hmm. in the case of South Africa, this is going to take something like 17 years to move out of poverty. And this means that we need to have an accelerated program to do that but it requires everybody, the private sector, those who have, to be part of the solidarity program to ensure that every South African can eat. I mean, when you start to look at the figures on poverty and inequality, 51%, that is a huge figure, and 60% of South Africans go to bed hungry. That is not an acceptable situation, and that is something that we have to change. And so when we call ourselves a country that centralizes human rights, where we embed a human rights culture, then it's critical that we action that. And so far, I don't think we see any examples of that.
0: Yeah, heavy. It is heavy. I'm gonna leave it there because if we don't, we will risk not actually having a takeover to be done by you. So after the break, without much to say, but with everything to say, we're going to wait for the beautiful conversation on accountability for apartheid crimes, a conversation moderated by Ms. Yasmin Suka, who is a human rights lawyer, executive director of the Foundation for Human Rights in the Country, chair of the United Nations Commission on Human Rights for South Sudan. Her guests, Counselor Ms. Tembing Kadimeng, president of the South African Local Government Association, as well as an attorney, Mr. Moray Hathorn. I beg your pardon for the mispronunciation if there is one. He's a human rights lawyer at the Business law firm Weber Wenzel here in Johannesburg. After the break, accountability for apartheid crimes. The conversation surely does continue.